Well, I, I remember uh, reading an article by Kevin DeYoung uh, a few years ago about the, the preacher's dilemma uh, during Christmas. And um, I, I've not always followed his counsel, uh, for sure, but I, I plan on it this year. And what I want to do is just read this entire article for you. It's just, um, you know, about three minutes or so. And, and, and um, Kevin DeYoung writes the article, says, uh, Pastor, don't get cute this Christmas. And he writes this. He says, I know the feeling. Christmas comes around every year. The, the same songs, the same text, the same story. And most of the time, I love the familiar rhythm of Advent and the comforting routine of tradition. Uh, you know, let me, let me do this. Hang on here. Good. We are good. All right. So, I love the familiar routine of Advent, the comforting routine of tradition. But as a pastor, I also know the sense of desperation. How many more Christmas sermons and holiday homilies can I possibly come up with? You may not know that, but I know that. And I rarely do a full four-week Advent series. And the poor brother who does an Advent series every year for 40 years is going to preach at least 160 sermons on Christmas. And I sympathize with the temptation to novelty. But don't do it, Pastor. Don't get cute at Christmas. Your people need regular meat and potatoes, not the newest eggnog recipe. Stay away from props and video clips. Put to death the Star Wars tie-in you've been really excited about. (laughs) Don't be worried about preaching the same truths and the same themes. They don't remember last year's sermon anyway. Go ahead and tell them the old, old story one more time. That means the Christmas Eve service should not be about the evils of shopping or the dangers of busyness. We can leave behind our clever cliches like wise men still seek him or have yourself a merry Christmas, M-A-R-Y. There's no need to focus for 40 minutes on what exactly was the star of Bethlehem. And if you are going to talk about the Magi, don't make it an academic lecture on Persian astrology. Let's spare our people the usual harangue about how Protestants have ignored Mary for too long, even though I've heard that sermon and I've read those articles every year since I was a kid. Let's not get caught up in the dating of Christmas or debunking the supposed parallels with Mithras. Are any of these things wrong in themselves? Of course not. I've touched on these themes in a number of messages over the years, but let's keep the main thing the main thing. There will be unbelievers at your Christmas Eve servants and struggling saints, and weary souls, and wayward sinners, and stragglers who have ventured into a church for the first time in a long time, they need to hear about Jesus, about the Word made flesh, about the only begotten Son from the Father, about the one who fulfilled ancient prophecy, about the one who came to save his people from their sins. Dear Pastor, and I'm reminding myself as much as I'm reminding you, our people don't need us to find something new. They don't need empty spiritual bromides. They don't need us to brandish our cultural bona fides at Christmas. Our people need the gospel. They need the Trinity. They need to hear about the miracle and the majesty and the mystery of the incarnation. So hunker down in Matthew 1 or or Luke 2 or Isaiah 9 or Micah 5 or John 1 or in any text that will lead you to lift high the name of Jesus. Don't be cute or clever. Just preach Christ. Your people will be glad you did. And looking back years later, so will you. And uh, this Christmas season, I plan to follow Kevin DeYoung's counsel. 
Uh, I'm not planning to be cute or clever this Christmas, though I have tried in the past before. If you remember my videos of Messiah before, a couple years ago, that was an abject failure because the video didn't work. That was terrible. I'm not planning to come up with some new slant on Christmas. I'm planning to tell you this morning of the the story of the miracle, the majesty, and the mystery of the incarnation. And, And what I plan to do is do that just week by week, looking at each of the Gospels to see what they teach about Christmas. This week, we're going to look at, at Matthew, and you can turn there to Matthew chapter 1. This is my, my first message, appropriately my message entitled, Christmas in Matthew. And next week, we'll skip Mark, because Mark doesn't tell the story of the birth of Jesus. He picks up at the baptism of, of John, so we'll just skip Mark. But next week, then, we'll look at Christmas in John, focusing on John chapter 1, which tells the mystery of the Incarnation even from before the world even began. Now, Christmas Eve, we'll look at Christmas in Luke, both morning and evening. And since Luke contains both chapters 1 and 2 about the Christmas story, we'll look at Luke chapter 1 in the morning and Luke chapter 2 in the evening. And I simply want to just tell the story again. I don't think there'll be anything novel in my message today, but it's the same old story we all need to hear. So you can look there at Matthew chapter 1. I want to begin reading. Just the first half of Matthew chapter 1 is how Matthew begins his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. It's the Word of God. That's why we have read it. Oftentimes, genealogies tend to be just cold and blandless, but they often have a point. And here this morning, believe it or not, this genealogy is the beginning of the Christmas story Because these words bring us into history. When you look at a genealogy in the Old Testament, the New Testament, you need to think, why is it there? And mostly it just grounds the Bible in history. The Bible's full of real stories of real people. 
And that's what this is showing us. shows us that Jesus was a real human being, descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, descended from David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah, born of flesh and blood. And these names in the genealogy were, were real people. Jesus didn't just appear out of thin air, dropping from heaven in upon us. No, Jesus came into time and history. He came into the world the same way that all of us come into the world, through the womb of a woman. So this is my my first point, is that genealogy shows us that Jesus was truly man. This is the reality of Christmas. That when Jesus came to dwell among us, he came to dwell us as a human being, as one of us. But if you notice here in the genealogy, there, there are two important people that stand out, except for Jesus. Obviously, he's the end, and he's, he's the all-important one, which it's all leading to. But there are two other people here I just want to focus your attention on, which help bring us and give us some background to the Messiah coming. And Matthew points them out for us right there in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. And, and though this order, we might think, Abraham first and then David next. He gives us David first and then Abraham. So we'll look at the son of David. The fact that Jesus was the son of David signifies that he had royal blood. For us in the United States, it's a little bit foreign to us, especially presidential season coming up. Caucuses in Iowa soon to come about. We elect our president. We elect all our rulers. If you're more than 35 years of age and you're born in the United States, you may become the leader of our country. You simply need to convince enough people to vote for you, and you'll become the most powerful person in the world. That's available to all of us, but not so other people in the world. is isn't the case in Israel during the days of Jesus either. In other nations, right, when the king dies, his son becomes king in this place. When this new king, the son, dies, then the next son becomes king. And the next son becomes king. And sometimes the queen. There's no vote. There's no, there's no popular opinion, right? It's the next in line becomes a king. Now, of course, there are hostile takeovers, right? But that's how the dynasty works in normal circumstances. In these nations, it's ancestry that's important and not votes. And we see the ancestry here in Matthew chapter 1 that shows us that Jesus was the son of David, that is, of royal blood. He received the promise of David. And the Old Testament prophesied when the Messiah would come, he would come from the line of David. 2 Samuel 7 is the key passage in the Old Testament where this is made. It's the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7 says, The Lord comes to David and says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promised that from the line of David, that his kingdom would endure forever and ever and ever. It means the Messiah would come from the line of David. This is what he points out here in Matthew chapter 1. And the Jews knew this very well. You think about Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men came from the east to worship the king of the Jews who had just been born. They asked the Jews, chapter 2 and verse 2 of Matthew, said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? He was ignorant, though the Pharisees knew. And the Pharisees told him, Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem was the town of David. The ruler would come from his line. The ruler would come from the town of David. Further in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus asked the Pharisees a question in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 42. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. The Messiah would come from men, would come from the line of David. That's the point there. But David's not the only prominent person. Also, we have Abraham. Let's look at, think about him. We have the son of David, as verse 1 says, the son of Abraham. Of course, if you're a son of David, you are a son of Abraham because David was a son of Abraham. But Matthew takes pains to point this out, to bring these to prominence to us. Not only the son of David, um, kingly line, but also the son of Abraham, right? the, the, the one who was of, of the covenant, the one who started Israel. Right? The son of David identifies Jesus having royal blood. The son of Abraham identifies Jesus as having Jewish blood. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And the Abrahamic covenant comes in Genesis chapter 12. Right? When the Lord appeared to Abraham when he was in his own country, Ur of the Chaldeans. And he comes and he tells him this, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. The Davidic covenant comes in 2 Samuel 7. The Abrahamic covenant comes here in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham to leave his country to this land that I'm going to show you. And when you're in that land... I will make of you, Abraham, a, a great country. The Lord would bless Abraham. The Lord would, cur- would protect Abraham. So that if anyone cursed his family, right, he would be cursed. And that God would even bless those who blessed Abraham. And through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. It's only right for the Jewish people to consider themselves a special people, blessed of the Lord. Because that's what the Lord promised to Abraham. Great blessing. And when Abraham heard these words, he left his homeland, went to the land of Canaan as the Lord directed him, and the Lord made of Abraham a great nation, and God's hand was upon the people of Israel. But nowhere is the blessing of God greater than when Jesus came, because it was through him that all the families of the earth indeed were blessed, and were blessed through Jesus because his death provides the way of escape from our sins. And and, and you see that in chapter 1, verse 21, if we look ahead a little bit, Jesus or this Mary, will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save their people from their sins. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time, this Jesus who came to rescue us from our sins. Of course, that's the rest of the story of Jesus, how he'd come and live a perfect life for us and die in our place. But right here in the genealogy, you can see he was a man, born as a man, to die for men. There's much more that could be said about the genealogy, about this Three groups of 14 generations, that's certainly interesting. And the character of the men in the genealogy, some of whom are pretty shady, some of whom we know nothing about. 
genealogy, we should also spend time looking at the women in the genealogy. Some of them were abused, sexually assaulted. One of them was a foreigner. It simply shows the humanity of Jesus in all its messiness of his family lineage. But we lack time this morning to go into that deeply. We're just kind of talking about the story. And here it is, a genealogy shows us that Jesus was truly man. And we turn to the second half of Matthew chapter 1. We see a similar point. Jesus was truly God. Let's read verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, in the spirit of not being cute or creative this morning, simply want to walk through this story, looking at just the events, the events that happened in the story. And first we see the betrothal in the middle of verse 18. It just speaks about when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, this would have happened like beforehand, before this story, but it is an event. There's two young people who are planning to be married. They were betrothed. Now, we don't use that word today. Um, the reason is because our society is different than that of the, the first century. So when this word is used, you might think engagement, and you'd kind of be partially right. Mary and Joseph, indeed, were engaged to be married, but engagement's different in a, than betrothal. Betrothal is like a higher level of commitment than engagement. You can break engagements today without any problems from the law. Nothing is legally binding from you. You don't need to go to the courthouse if you were engaged and you give back your ring. But in the Jewish culture, when a couple was betrothed, they were legally married, even before the marriage day. That's why it says, we read in verse 19, that Joseph is called her husband, even though they're not yet married. And that's why also, in order for Joseph to call off the wedding, she had to put her away or divorce her. Same word you in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. It's divorce. Right? So how is it they became betrothed? Well, I'd love to tell you the story of Mary and Joseph. They were high school sweethearts, that she was the lead cheerleader and he was the quarterback and Tell the Hallmark story about how at first they didn't like each other, and, and then this mutual friend brought them together, and they really realized they liked each other, and Joseph did these great things and won the precious heart of Mary, which led to their engagement and their future marriage. But that's not how it probably happened. It probably went more like this. Starting not with Mary and Joseph, but starting with their parents. Both parents were probably religious. Joseph seemed to have been brought up... In the faith, for it said of Joseph in verse 19 that he was a, a righteous man. He was a, a just man. So he had not only heard, but he had embraced the faith and were, was walking in the ways of Judaism. And certainly in case Mary was a righteous woman as well, her parents must have taught her a lot about her Lord, as we read in Luke chapter 1, the Magnificat. 
when she spontaneously prays after hearing the news that she will bear a son. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has looked on the humble state of His servant. He was mighty. He has done great things for me. And holy is His name. So the parents were looking. Here's a godly man and a godly woman. And they, they probably noticed each other. And Joseph's parents noticed Mary. And Mary's parents noticed Joseph. And they said, hey, Joseph and Mary might be a good thing. And so they talked with the parents. And the agreement was signed. A dowry was paid. And Joseph and Mary were legally betrothed. And a wedding date was set. And according to Jewish custom, Joseph and Mary had to wait a year before they were married. In our country, we have various times from engagement to marriage. You can meet someone today, get on a plane, fly to Las Vegas, and be married tonight. It's the reality of what can take place in our country, in our, our culture. There are times when couples wait more than two years to get married. Perhaps one of them needs to finish college first, right? You're just waiting a long time until that happens. I, I know one man who met his wife as a freshman, and dad said, um, nope, you need to wait till you graduate. He said it was very, very difficult. But long time, short time, in Jesus' day, it was at least a year, and the purpose was to demonstrate the purity of the wife. If she had a child during that time, it would demonstrate her faithfulness, and the husband could call off the marriage. That's why it was a big deal, verse 18, when it's found that she was found to be with child. She was pregnant. It leads to the next event. First, there was the betrothal. And then the pregnancy, last phrase of verse 17, of 18 rather. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The natural assumption here is that she was unfaithful to Joseph. She was involved in some sort of immoral relationship with this through which a child was conceived. And the social stigma that day would have been great. I mean, in our society, the, the stigma is big, but it's been reduced greatly in, in recent years. I don't know how many children are born today out of wedlock. It's certainly approaching 50%. Amanda, do you know? Pregnancy care center? No, it's a lot. Um, more and more children born out of wedlock. I remember, I remember as a young man, when I was growing up, they used to be frowned upon in society. And maybe some of you older than I am, you remember even how much more it was frowned upon. Even more so the time of Mary and Joseph. This explains the third event. Not only the, um, the betrothal, then the pregnancy, and then now Joseph's intentions, verse 19, when it came about. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When a just man found out that his wife had been unfaithful during the betrothal, the godly thing would have been to divorce her. Listen, the godly thing would have been to divorce her. He was doing what the law required. That's the righteous, just thing to do. But Joseph had another desire within him according to the spirit of the law. As exact and demanding as the law was, it always stressed mercy for the helpless. For instance, just read Exodus 21 and Exodus 22, and you see how the law required mercy to the weaker people and to the helpless. That is the orphan, the widow, the foreigner. Who's in your land, mercy to them ought to come. And Joseph, right, in the, the spirit of that, was unwilling to put her to shame. He resolved to divorce her quietly. He wanted to divorce her because his righteousness demanded that, but he also wanted to do it secretly because he didn't want to put her to shame in light of the spirit of a law. And Joseph easily could have put her away and shamed her. According to Deuteronomy 22, he could have publicly defamed her, had a trial, 
and had her stoned. But Joseph wasn't seeking revenge. Maybe this shows a little bit of his love for her. He didn't want public disgrace. He wasn't seeking to get even. He was attempting to be gracious and kind to Mary while doing the thing prescribed by the law. And certainly after much prayer and thought, his heart was fully intent upon doing this, ready to act. And then comes the supernatural twist to the story. Event number four, God's intervention, verse 20. But as he considered these things, what am I to do? Certainly praying, thinking about it. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The supernatural act of the Holy Spirit had already been mentioned in verse 18. That's, didn't really comment on it, but, but there it is in verse 18 that she'd been found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. But here this angel comes and explains to Joseph all that happened. The argument of the angel was this, right? The, the child in Mary's womb is not a result, Joseph, of immorality. Mary has not been unfaithful to you. Rather, Mary has conceived by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Joseph, it's okay to take Mary as your wife, even though the whole purpose of the betrothal period for this year is to check for unfaithfulness. Even though it looks like Mary's been unfaithful, she's been faithful. So take Mary as your wife. Now, let me ask you, right, does that sound far-fetched? Does that sound unbelievable? Would you believe this story if Joseph your son or Mary, your daughter, came to tell the story about, no, it's not immorality. Mom and Dad, it's not. This angel appeared to me. It's of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like a, a new one. I never heard that one before. Precisely because it was supernatural. And maybe it's like the top ten excuses that people gave for not having their homework done. My mother wanted to display it on the fridge. Therefore, I didn't bring my homework today. Number nine, I was abducted by aliens and they took it. Number eight, my dad mistook it for a letter and posted it to China. Now, if these are ridiculous, I think that's a little bit of how ridiculous Joseph may have sounded. Number seven, I had to burn it in the fireplace to keep myself warm. Number six, it flew out the window of my car. Number five, I thought I'd do it tomorrow because I'd be older and wiser then. I thought that was a really good one. Number four, I did my work. It's all up here. It's in my head. Number three, I didn't do it because I didn't want to add to your workload. (laughs) Number two, my hand fell asleep and I didn't want to wake it up. And here's the number one reason for kids giving not uh, why they didn't bring their homework My cat ate it knowing that I'd blame the dog. (laughs) Are we so used to the Christmas story that we miss how far-fetched and ridiculous it is of what Joseph and Mary experienced and believed and were willing to go through? I think we can be dulled so often by the repetition of the story. We hear it over and over and over again. I remember one time explaining Christmas to a a foreign man who was in our land, didn't really know about Christianity, didn't know about Christmas. And I remember reading this passage to him and kind of feeling myself like, this is really strange. 
someone who's never heard this story of, of a virgin birth, and I thought to myself, right, who would really believe this? So let us not as a church just kind of, well, that's a fable, that's whatever, that's there, and we believe it. And lean into how ridiculous it sounds. And therefore, lean into the miracle of it. Just like the resurrection. The resurrection is equally as, as crazy and bizarre. That a, a dead man in the tomb, buried, would rise after three days. I mean, it's become such commonplace for us that we embrace it, but we don't realize just how strange it may sound to first-time ears. And so this Christmas time, just even think with, with new ears, if you will, of how amazing this is. Joseph believed it, as much far-fetched story as it, it was. And maybe he'd heard it from Mary before, beforehand. I think about these engaged couples, and we will look to Luke in a couple of weeks about the whole story about the angel appearing to Mary. And, and being engaged, you talk about a lot of things, about how your life is going to run and how you're going to do things in the house and how decisions are going to be made and what your dreams are. And Mary may have well said, Joseph, I had this crazy dream last night. Let me tell you about it. Just just like, okay. <laughs> and as he was thinking then about what to do, like it shows that he didn't really believe that, what, what was said, what she said, justified, whatever. And then this angel, and he's like, okay, I'm a believer. And how Joseph re- respond, I, this is super encouraging. Look at verse 24 and 25. Joseph obeyed the angel in everything. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He did it. He said, you commanded me, I do it. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph obeyed the Lord in everything. Do you have any idea what that would have done to Joseph's reputation and to Mary's reputation? This child would have destroyed their reputation. The most self-protecting thing for Joseph to have done would have been to divorce Mary secretly. Then to be clear, of all the charges, would have kept his his hands clean from any apparent sin. But to take his wife, Mary, probably meant that he himself would face disgrace. He would try till he's blue in the face to explain that the child wasn't his and he was innocent to the entire matter and so was she. But in the world's eyes... Mary would have been seen as sinful and Joseph perhaps as well. People would have claimed that either it was his child conceived out of wedlock or another man's child born in infidelity. Now we know little about Joseph's life, but we do know that Jesus lived with this reputation his whole life. In John chapter 8, we see discussion with the Jewish leaders who insinuated that Jesus was born of sexual immorality. Jesus was called a bastard in his day. And if Jesus faced that reputation, Joseph certainly would have faced it as well as the one who caused it, or Mary as well. The names that Mary would have received. To take Mary as a wife would only face mockery and rejection from the world, the religious world, that is. And what encouraging it is that Joseph seems ready to hear God's word and respond no matter how high the price. He's in heart, step with the apostles, who when told not to preach says we must obey God rather than men. We need to speak, we need to preach, right? We need to act. And Joseph was ready to take on the scorn of the world. 
And I think he was willing to take on the scorn because he understood this birth was a, a supernatural birth. God's intervention to come in the supernatural birth. Our final event comes in verse 25, which is the, the virgin birth of all the events thus far. But leading to this event, the virgin birth of Jesus is the focus. And notice, right, that is the whole focus of this whole section is the virgin birth of Jesus. Uh, look at it. Four times in these eight verses it's referred to. Look at verse 18. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That is not another man, but God impregnating Mary. Verse 20, that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit, not another man. Right? A virgin birth, if you will. Verse 23 speaks from the prophecy in Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Verse 25, Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth. It's especially apparent here that Matthew goes out of his way to make it clear that she was a virgin clear up to the time of her birth. These passages focus on the, the virgin birth. And, and in Luke's account, we get to that in two weeks from now, the virgin birth be four times as well mentioned. Similarly, like told to, to Mary and mentioned several times. And, and the birth of Jesus was extraordinary. It was miraculous. And it's important. And though, in all of Scripture, the only other place this is mentioned besides Matthew and Luke, is from the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Mark didn't write about it. John didn't write about it. It's not mentioned in the book of Acts. Paul didn't write about it. And it's said, led some to believe this doctrine is, is not important and not essential. But I say, church family, right, it is essential. It is essential for us. And it's easily understood why it's mentioned a few times. I mean, Mark didn't write about it because he began after his birth at the baptism of John. John didn't write it either because he didn't write necessarily about the birth of Jesus. He spoke about just what, who Jesus was in long eternity past and who he's come to be in time. It's not mentioned in the book of Acts because that records the evangelistic mission of the, the church. Paul didn't write about it because he wrote about problems the church faced, and apparently the virgin birth of Christ wasn't a big problem. In that Had it been an issue, I'm sure Paul would have written about it. But it's, it's worthy to note that the virgin birth was unanimously embraced by the early church. Of course, non-believers and skeptics mocked the, the virgin birth just like they mocked the resurrection, just like people today will mock the virgin birth, will mock Christian, Christmas, they'll mock the resurrection. But Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, in 110 A.D., wrote about the virgin birth as commonly known accepted fact within the church. Tertullian spoke of it. The Nicene Creed, which we read today, which was written in 325 A.D., said, I believe in Jesus Christ, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. The virgin birth was included in the Apostles' Creed, which was after the Nicene Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And of course, it's under attack today. It's been since German rationalism in the mid-1800s. It's come to modern liberal Christian circles where they question everything supernatural. With regard to the virgin birth, right? Doubts cast upon it because it's supernatural. Does God really act that way? It's really not important. 
But we need to remember the life of Jesus was saturated with miracles. He healed blind men. He healed deaf men. He restored withered hands. He raised people from the dead. He fed multitudes. He rose from the dead. It should not surprise us that his birth was miraculous as well. I can't explain it to you. I just know that I can't explain how Jesus fed the multitudes or healed the people or raised the dead. And you can't explain it either because if you explain it, it's not miraculous. If you can't explain it, it's miraculous. And many liberal circles today have sought to explain the supernatural by just natural phenomenon. And then they, they explain away the supernatural and they just devoid the Bible of the supernatural. And so it is the birth of Christ. It was a miracle. We need to accept it. We need to believe it. And we need to embrace it. And why? It's because of verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. The, the veracity of the scriptures at stake. And Matthew takes great point to, re- to say the birth of Jesus had to be this way. It was prophesied. It goes right along with Matthew's purpose in writing the gospel. He wrote to the Jews who had a high view of scripture. And over and over and over and over and over again, he speaks about how the scripture was fulfilled in this way or that way. In fact, in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, the scripture was fulfilled by bringing the Messiah from the line of David. In chapter 2, we see the birth of Jesus followed the prophecy of Mike, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, as Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In chapter 2, verse 15, we see that Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt, that the words of the prophets might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Herod slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem, that Jeremiah's weeping might be fulfilled. Chapter 2, verse 18, 17, thus was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for his children, for her children. Jesus moved to Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He should be called a Nazarene. Often, over and over, it's that the scripture might be fulfilled. And what's the fulfillment here in chapter 1? Verse 23, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Prophesied, had to be birthed like this. The validity of the scripture is at stake. But also our salvation is at stake as well. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Greek word. That's why Matthew translates it for his Greek readers. His name should be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Im with, anu us, el God. With us, God. And this is the great mystery of Christmas, that God himself would come to live and to dwell with us. We'll see next week how, as I said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tented among us. He lived among us. And John says, we touched Him, we heard Him, we, we tasted, we saw. We saw Him. It really comes back to my second point here. Jesus was truly God. He was truly God. That's the whole, whole point of the virgin birth, is that, yes, it was God who's come. This was Jesus was the God-man. Truly man from the genealogy and truly God from the virgin birth. So it took place in Mary's womb when God entered the womb. As much as Jesus was truly man, he was also truly God. And the early church wrestled with this. Oh, they wrestled with this. Trying to figure out how to say it and how to figure it out and and how to put it together. 
and the Nicene Creed again, which we recited today. Think about how it wrote. He says, we, we recited with the church for several millennia, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. The Son of God, begotten. Born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, co-substantial with the Father, through Him all things were made. Over and over, talking about just how the mystery of the Trinity works together. That Jesus is true God of, of true God. He's, he's light of light, co-substantial with the Father, begotten not made. And for us men... And for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate to the Virgin Mary. He became man. That God came to save us. In fact, even that's the point of verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. From Yeshua, the salvation, Yeshua, to save. For, because he will save his people from their sins. Every time they said Jesus, Jesus means Savior. He's the one who came to save. And here is God. Able to save. And the only way that God could save us was to have a sinless man be our representative. To undo everything that Adam, the first sinless man, did. This first sinless man and wife, whatever, committed sin and brought all of us into sin. And the virgin birth had to come so that Adam's line would not be there. So that he, he would not be dead in Adam's sin but could start anew and afresh, if you will, not from Adam's line. It was God with us able to save, and he lived among us perfectly. He had to be the God-man, the one who could live perfectly, bear our sins. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. As Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for animal sacrifice to take away sins. It's impossible for your good works to take away sins. It's impossible for any sacrifice that you make for God even, as like 1 Corinthians 13 speaks about, giving your body away to be burned, to be martyred. It's not good enough. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He can take it away because he was the God-man. He was man so he could die for men. He was God so that his sacrifice would be pure. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Please this man with men to dwell Jesus our Emmanuel. And that's Christmas in Matthew. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would respond as the, the Magi did, these, these wise men who came from the east, who heard about this one who's been born king of the Jews. They saw his star, and they've come to worship him. And this Christmas season, God, I, I pray that just a, a simple walking through the texts that describe Christmas might bring us back to wa- un- wa- wonder and awe at the, the majesty and the, the miraculous and the wonderment of Christmas and, and all that it means, God, that we might embrace and understand that Jesus was truly man and that he was truly God and the mystery surpasses our comprehension and understanding, oh God, but we embrace it because it's so key to our salvation and that we might even in turn worship you as did these wise men. So help us, so oh God, this Christmas season to be so enthralled with you. God, so enamored by what you did for us to come and live and dwell and die for us. God, that we would respond and worship to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.